trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are in the home stretch, heading towards Independence Day. I know, mentally, most people have already checked out. And I'm happy for them. No, really, I am. Okay, I have an interesting mental exercise I want to begin with, and, and I, I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot here. I'm, I'm as susceptible to this as, as anyone. But I saw a very curious exercise that a, a professor of jurisprudence at uh, Princeton, I believe it's at Princeton University, asks of his students... And as you look around us today and you see all these people crusading, we're trying to stamp out injustice. I'm bravely standing for equality. I'm doing everything I can. I want to eliminate prejudice, etc., etc. This professor, whose name is uh, Robert P. George, says, I sometimes ask students what their position on slavery would have been had they been white and living in the South before abolition. Guess what? They all would have been abolitionists. They all would have bravely spoken out against slavery and worked tireless, tirelessly against it. Now, I want to pose that same question to you, because I just want to say, does that ring true? If you lived in a time, if you lived in a society where there was an injustice that was so deeply seated in society that pretty much everybody just, well, that's the way it is, you know. What can you do about it? Would you be the one standing up and bravely speaking out? In our hearts, we want to believe it, right? Yes, I would be that heroic figure. I would be, I would be the one humbly and nobly leading people, you know, to the truth. But this professor, Robert George, says, of course, this is nonsense. Look at the reality. When slavery was a reality, when it was the de facto setting and accepted by society, only the tiniest fraction of them, or of any of us, spoke up against it. Why would that be different today if there was an injustice going on? Not necessarily slavery, but just, you know, any injustice. How many of us speak up against injustices that we see or lift a finger to help people who are on the receiving end of injustice? Are you feeling uncomfortable? Because I was as I was walking myself through this exercise and realizing most of them and us would have gone along with it. In fact, many would have supported the slave system and happily benefited from it. Now, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means sometimes we have a little inflated sense of our goodness and, you know, how we would choose the right. Even if it meant standing up against the majority of society. And that's the point here. So Professor George says, I respond by saying I will credit their claims if they can show any evidence of the following, that in leading their lives today, they have stood up for the rights of unpopular victims of injustice whose very humanity is denied and where they have done so, knowing that it would make them unpopular with their peers, that they would be loathed and ridiculed by powerful, influential individuals and institutions in our society, 
that they would be abandoned by many of their friends, they, w- they would be called nasty names, and that they would risk being denied valuable professional opportunities as a result of their moral witness. In short, he says, my challenge is to show where they have, at risk to themselves and their futures, stood up for a cause that is unpopular in the elite sectors of our culture today. I don't know about you, but that uh, that was a powerful exercise to read about and to, you know, evaluate myself on. Okay, I've had opportunities. Actually, we all have. How have we done not eradicating slavery? All right. That was done a long time ago by people in a different time than us. The, the heavy lifting on that is long since past. So if you're bravely standing up against slavery today by tearing down monuments and statues and, you know, <laughs> renaming schools or whatever it is, uh, thanks. But, you know, the, that train pulled out a long time ago. Tell me about something you're willing to do today that would make you unpopular, that would make you loathed and ridiculed by the powerful or influential in society, that would cause you to be abandoned by many of your friends or even members of your family, that would subject you to questioning of your motives, being called nasty names, and that could actually get you in trouble, like get you either fired or denied opportunities in your work. It could, it could harm your livelihood if you took that stand. Suddenly the list of people are like, hashtag me too. Yeah, I would do it. It gets very, very small. Now I can give you a good example of some individuals who I think actually were willing to do that. Yeah, Ammon Bundy would be one of them. Lavoy Finnegan would be another. Actually, quite a few of the folks who stood with the Bundys. And even the people who rallied around them and helped through their trials. I, th- I saw a lot of folks in there who, who at great personal expense, either in time, effort, or in sometimes money, were there rallying and trying to help them in any way that they could. But I saw a lot of people turn away because they feared being lumped in. Well, I don't want to be seen as a radical. I don't want to be seen as, you know, supporting something that not everybody can support. And the hatred and the ridicule that was directed at them was absolutely real. And you know what's interesting? A lot of the people who turned their backs, in fact, a lot of the people who found joy and rejoiced when they would see Ammon suffering in jail or they, when Lavoie Finnegan was killed, a lot of those same people, I'm sure, would count themselves as, yes, I would be one of the brave ones who would stand for the dispossessed and the, the disenfranchised. No, you wouldn't. Because you're going along with injustice today. You're okay with it. You celebrate it as long as it's happening to somebody else. You probably would have done it back then as well. Sorry, that's a difficult thing to confront, but I think it's absolutely true. And by the way, I see the potential in myself to have gone along to get along as well. So I'm not just condemning them as well. (laughs) Glad I'm not them. I seriously wonder if I would have made the very same mistake. And I tend to think I probably would. Let's go back to the phone here. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Yeah, Brian, Sam calling. Just a couple of comments on two pieces. First of all, on what you were just talking about uh, with the Bundys and uh, people rejoicing over their suffering. My answer to that is be very, very careful. I'll just put it this way to keep it clean for the radio, and that's uh, karma is a BTCH, and I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, what goes around comes around, definitely. You got it. So I'll just leave it at that, and you guys can all figure out the rest. 
Um, on the other comment regarding the first article in the first hour, this uh, Cheryl Mosley, I think you said was your name? Yeah. Yeah. Here's my problem with this. Now, Brian, this is where I'm different. I will not compromise on the mask issue. I've already drawn my line in the sand. Um, if you are scared to death of all this stuff, after all the evidence has been so overwhelming as to how baked all of this stuff really is as far as the way they've cooked the books on everything and, and this, okay, if you want to wear a mask, that's fine because you're the one that's scared. But don't go asking me to wear a mask because you're scared. That's not my job. My job is for you to sift through the facts and figure it out for yourself. But I'm not going to wear a mask just to please you any more than I'm going to take a vaccine just to please you. Now, you understood, though, in her comments, she was saying she takes the responsibility to protect herself rather than insisting everybody else put, right, on, put on the mask. That part. And that, okay. that's right on. But I'm just saying, Brian, where I, where I draw the line is, I will not compromise on the mask issue. I know you were saying you would compromise if somebody uh, asked you to wear a mask. No, I wouldn't because, I, first of all... Well, now, now understand, Sam. You know, my mom is 85 years old, and when I go to visit yeah. her, she is at very, she's at very high risk. Her health is not great. And, and I ask her, do you want me to mask up? I let her dictate, especially when I'm visiting her in her home, if that's what she would prefer. And her answer is no. But it's more out of respect for her, and, and I would do the same for anybody who, who asked me, look, as long as you're here with me, would you do this? I, I'm not going to do the blanket thing. Though. If there are people in the store, you know, I, 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 just, I don't want to play along with the charade of, look, everybody, look how obedient I am. But I would respect a private individual, or for that matter, a private property owner, if they personally ask me, would you mind doing this? Yeah, I get that part. My problem is, is when is it going to be next time before they say, well, unless you're vaccinated? Oh, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. The, the ratcheting effect is going on. And if we can be coerced into wearing these masks, you know, whether they work or not, or whether they provide any real, you know, protection or not, it's going to be that much easier to say, well, then you need to get the vaccine, whether it works or not. Right. And that's, that's where I'm coming from. And I've already drawn my line in the sand. And that is... Uh, any, now, so far, they haven't required it out here. Now, up in St. Louis, Missouri, they're getting nuts up there. I already talked to one friend of mine up there where they're just getting goofy, and he's not compromising either up there with them there. Basically, my attitude is, yeah, you have a right to say whether I have to wear a mask or whatever in your private property, but I also have the right not to go there. Well said. Sam, thank you so much for your call. Have a happy Independence Day. We will take a break. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, welcome back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 801-331-8113 is my number. So that mental exercise from Professor Robert P. George. Does it make you uncomfortable to think, yeah, would I have been one of the people, would I have been a slave catcher? Would I have been a guard at a Nazi camp? And the truth of the matter is, unless you have actually been there, if, you've, if you have not been in that person's shoes, you really don't know how you would have reacted. But based on how most people in society try to seek that path of least resistance, it's a fairly safe bet that most of us, if we didn't go along with very open, full-throated support, would have tacitly gone along so as not to draw attention to ourselves or to buck the current tide of opinion. Because it's painful. And you pay a price for doing so. 
And this is not to say, therefore, you should never stand up for something. It's just it's a recognition that when someone truly stands up against something, they are they are exhibiting far greater bravery than the folks who are running around right now saying, you know, let's tear down this statue. Let's tear down this monument. Let's burn down this building. And by the way, when we come back here from this call here in just a moment, we're going to talk about how abolishing museums is one of the items on the list of to do things for those who are uh, you know, trying to bring social justice to the forefront. Why are they so desperate to sever any ties we have to the past, including those from which we could learn? I don't know, but we'll find out. Let's go to the phone. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Um, now, uh, my point on both subjects, you know, uh, taking, destroying museums, taking down monuments, and also with the, the Bundys um, and, the, and Finnegan, um, you know, as, as far as um, at what point, you know, do we stand up? You know, uh, um, and my point is that as far as we know in all of history, there's never been any government, any society that has a better way of addressing wrongs or injustices than the one that we have if it's functioning properly and if people are standing up for their rights. And um, that unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't fully understand this system that the Founding Fathers gave us. And, and the point I'd like to make, you know, I can't remember if it was Finnegan or if it was the Bundys. I'm having a Joe Biden moment here. <laughs> But I, I can't remember which one it was, but one of them, all their 51 neighbors lost their farms. That was Clive and Bundy's neighbors. Yeah. It was Bundy's. Okay, because of the overreach of the BLM. And these people were trying to cooperate with the BLM and meet all the regulations and everything was happening. And they, they were uh, put out of business financially. And one woman, I understand, hung herself, committed suicide. She just didn't know what to do losing the farm from what I understand, you know, and, and so, you know, at this system we have of addressing the wrongs, all societies have wrongs and injustices. And, and, you know, of course, communism, socialism, they have what a hundred billion. I mean, if you add everyone up together, we don't even know the full number of how many people have been killed by all these dictatorships through time and history. But um, I just wish there somehow we could teach more to the youth in the schools how to use the system. They, they get a lot further instead of rioting. I mean, either having a per peaceful march like Martin Luther King or Gandhi, you know, or going through our system. Our system's powerful. It's there for change. We can make change, you know, if we want to stand up for something and, and devote our time and money and resources to the issues that we think are important. Ray, I appreciate your comment. And I'm going to actually, I'm going to share something a little bit later on this hour about uh, how uh, it's, it's in the schools that this, this, this mentality of we've got to flee from the past. We've got to run from it, you know, as fast as we can. There's a great article here from Jeff Minnick that talks about uh, where that dynamic that uh, that has a standing at this historic crossroads of are we having a revolution or are we having a protest? 
because it's looking more and more like a, a revolution. And, and a lot of that is springing from education, particularly higher education. And I, I want to go back for just a second. Uh, Ray had asked a very good question. How do you know? How do you know when it's time to stand up? And I, I don't know if this is the right answer, but this is the gauge that I use in my own life. This is how I, I determine. I have to go by my conscience. If my conscience says, you need to say something here, you need to do something here. That's what I try to follow. And I'm going to hold Ammon Bundy up as another example of this. When he saw what was happening to the Hammond family in Oregon, it was his conscience that motivated him to go and make that hard stand by occupying the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. He said he felt that this is what God would have him do because his conscience could not abide the thought of this family being further victimized. And what makes it powerful is he was willing to suffer for those beliefs. He was willing to suffer for his willingness to speak the truth and to assert that they had been, that the Hammonds had been abused and that it needed to stop. He spent the better part of two years of his life in prison, away from his family, not even convicted of a crime, but nonetheless treated very much like a prisoner who had, had you know, been convicted of some criminal offense. That's a guy with skin in the game. And I'm not saying everybody needs to do exactly what he did, but I'm saying if you have, if you're that devoted to being the kind of person who can be counted on to stand up, you know, you had better be a person who's prepared to suffer for what you're doing. Because all through society, we are trained to punish those who deviate from the conventional wisdom. Don't believe it? Well, put on your MAGA hat and go walk around a college campus. Let me know how long it takes before somebody comes and picks a fight with you. Simple stuff. Even the simple stuff is hard to do. Let's talk about abolishing museums. Anders Koskinen, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, says identity politics has reached a new level of insanity. The latest demand calls for the abolition of, no, not law enforcement agencies, but museums. It's critical that we move past identity politics. Decolonize this place, organizer Mars Safor told CNN. It's not enough to hire an indigenous curator. It's not enough to have one black person on your board. Museums as we know them have to be abolished. I don't want my voice to be added to museums that are often trophy cases for imperialism. Boy, there's certainly the language of the uh, Marxists right there. So we abolish these trophy cases of imperialism. Where does that leave our nation's children? Anders Koskinen says, well, I know where where it would have left me. As an example, Madison West High School taught me little to nothing about the Inuit peoples and their cultures. However, one afternoon in a museum in Anchorage, Alaska, went a long way toward filling some of that gap. Frankly, he says there's not enough time in a student's history class for him to learn all he ought to or even uh, or, or wants to about even one or two topics throughout his K-12 through career. Places like natural history museums offer an unparalleled opportunity for children to learn and experience a breadth of topics in a short time. And he says, surely exposing children to many topics and cultures they've never heard of has to be a good thing. Abolishing museums is a demand that moves us past identity politics, but it does so not in that it rejects identity politics, but instead that it calls such politics insufficient for the current stage of the cultural revolution. 
And he says, we're past that stage of the fight. If progressives were honest about their goals regarding statues and museums, we'd see their demands in a more sinister kind of light. Educational policy goals like these are simply incompatible with American values. In fact, they're directly hostile to them. Now, we'll come back. We'll touch on this again in just a few moments, and I'll open up the lines again. But why is it so important that we study what came before us? I think it was Cicero who said, because those who do not understand the past are forever children. Meaning they have to depend on someone else to explain to them, how did we get here from there? What does this all mean? What were the decisions that were made? The right ones and the wrong ones. The responsibility is on us. Be willing to pay the price and study it out for yourself. Hey, once again, welcome back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. I'm Brian Hyde, in case there was any confusion. <laughs> I'm glad you could join me. Just wanted to go over a couple more things here from this article from Anders Koskinen. Abolishing museums. That is the latest, that's the next check-off list item for uh, those who are pursuing this cultural revolution that's raging around us. Okay, tearing down the statues, you know, and getting rid of uh, monuments, renaming schools and highways. Yeah, that's just the beginning. Now they want to tear down, or I'm sorry, abolish the, uh, what did they call them? i got to go back here. It's a trophy case of imperialism. Okay. You know, what's interesting is John Dewey, in his 1916 book, Democracy and Education, says the theory that the proper subject matter of instruction is found in the culture products of past ages affords another instance of that divorce between the process and product of growth, which has been criticized. Now, Koskinen points out, Dewey was a progressive education reformer, philosopher, and psychologist who identified himself as a democratic socialist. His prolific writing and career of advocacy left a profound impact on the American education system, the products of which we now see riding in the streets and calling for the abolition of museums. See, in Dewey's mind, education wasn't a place for people to learn about where they came from. It was a place to learn about how they might change society going forward. Listen to this excerpt from the chapter, Education as Conservative and Progressive. This is John Dewey. Quote, an individual can live only in the present. The present is not something which comes after the past, much less something produced by it. It is what life is in leaving the past behind it. The study of past products will not help us understand the present, because the present is not due to the products, but to the life of which they were the products. And the mistake of making the records and the remains of the past, the main material of education, is that it cuts the vital connection of present and past and tends to make the past a rival of the present and the present a more or less futile imitation of the past. End quote. Now, Anders Koskinen says, Here the lie of a progressive model of education is revealed. How can one actually believe that the present is not a product of the past. Do not the choices of individuals and groups build upon one another to create the conditions in which we currently live? Now, whether you think these conditions are good or bad, that's immaterial. It's a question of agency, both for ourselves and those who preceded us. So if history doesn't matter in regard to our present conditions, he asks, then why does it matter at all? Who cares what history is presented or in what matter it is presented? In, he says, surely museums provide no threat 
if, as Dewey argues, the study of past products will not help us understand the present. Now, Dewey concludes this chapter of the book by saying, men have long had some intimation of the event, I'm sorry, the extent, rather, to which education may be consciously used to eliminate obvious social evils through starting the young on paths which shall not produce these ills, and some idea of the extent in which education may be made an instrument of realizing the better hopes of men. Did you catch what he's saying here? Anders Koskinen says, here is where the progressive interest in education lies. There is no goal of using the facts of the past to inform reactions to present events. Education is just a tool to reshape the minds of the next generation and by which to ensure their conformity to the progressive vision of what the better hopes of men actually entail. A vision which many people who actually study history understand is deeply flawed. It's the progressive educators who will design, decide rather what constitutes the obvious social evils which must be avoided. Not the parents of said offspring. And as such, traditional views on marriage, gender, the value of human life, and constitutional republicanism are all easily cast aside by those who control America's classrooms. And so he says the erasure of history is therefore a necessary step for the advancement of progressive causes and museums must be abolished in order for society to advance in this regard. This is something Americans cannot allow to happen, for our educational system has already gone too far down Dewey's pathway. What an interesting thought. Now, I want to shift gears at this point. And one of the things I want to bring up is the idea of, look, we're, we're supposed to be celebrating tomorrow the uh, the independence of this nation the freedom that came from from that declaration of independence and the subsequently the subsequent revolutionary war and the founding era and the constitution and and you know the growth and development of america as a nation but how many people can actually enunciate those founding principles i want to share a commentary this is from anthony davies he is one of the hosts of the Words and Numbers podcast from the Foundation for Economic Education, a brilliant podcast. And if you're not subscribed, you really should. He and uh, James Harrigan uh, do a marvelous job of putting a lot of common sense into about a half-hour package that will give you better insights and a more principled ta- take on the world than, uh, than you will hear just about anywhere else. And they're fun. These guys actually have a good time while they're doing it. It's not just a dry recitation of the facts. He has an article titled, This Fourth of July, America Needs to Remember Its Founding Principles. This is published in the Philadelphia Inquirer. He says, it's not fashionable these days to remember the birth of the United States some 244 years ago in Philadelphia. Instead, we fixate on mobs, laying waste to statues, blameworthy Confederates, and praiseworthy abolitionists alike. Getting all the facts straight doesn't seem to matter anymore. Those too genteel to topple statues busy themselves with the intellectual equivalent, passing judgment from behind their keyboards over who should be expunged from American history, and who is clean enough, by 21st century standards, to remain in the public's good graces. Given the public's recent trouble with the finer points of American history, a refresher course on the document that birthed a nation is in order. He says the story begins on June 11, 1776, when the Continental Congress appointed a committee of five, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Roger Livingston, to draft a Declaration of Independence. 
the committee appointed Jefferson, 33 years old at the time, to produce the first draft. Jefferson retired to the house of Jacob Graff on the southwest corner of 7th and Market Streets in Philadelphia, where he rented the second floor and produced the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. That committee and then Congress altered the draft 86 times. But the Declaration remained Jefferson's creation. And with Jefferson's document at the center of the debate, independence from Great Britain was approved on July 4, 1776. The occasion was so momentous that fourscore and seven years later, in his Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln would date the birth of the nation to it. Other dates might have been better. September 3, 1783, the Treaty of Paris was signed on that date, ending the Revolutionary War. Or September 17, 1787, the date the Constitution was signed at the Federal Convention, creating the Constitutional Republic under which we still live. But Lincoln chose the aspirational date, the date that independence was declared, and the reasons for it laid out in its clear argument. He was right to do so. Anthony Davies says the Declaration of Independence was without question a perfect statement of principle in 1776. But to conclude that the document applied only to that time is to risk misunderstanding the Declaration and the country that flowed from it. It has become fashionable in our day to dismiss not only the man, but the words of the man in one fell swoop. So as statues of Jefferson come down either by mob action or by more deliberative efforts... His words come under attack, too. But hypocrisy, even the rank hypocrisy of Jefferson having enslaved people, is no reason to dismiss something we know to be true. The message, as is often is the case, is stronger than the messenger. Jefferson did not offer an 18th century truth in the Declaration. He offered timeless truth. His thinking remains far more powerful than his present-day detractors would admit. Indeed, that truth is so powerful that it has arguably animated every revolutionary movement from his day to ours. The message, Jefferson wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. These were brave words indeed from a blameworthy slaveholder. And because of the truth contained in those words, just fourscore and seven years later, slavery was finished in the United States. All men are created equal. The United States was and remains the only nation in the world founded on a principle. When we rise or and we rise and fall by our fidelity to that principle. Anthony Davies says it's not enough that human equality requires us to be tolerant of each other. Human equality also requires that we be decent toward one another. It requires all of us to acquiesce to the rule of law. It requires us to play by the rules and to abide by elections, seeing the best in our opponents, safe in the knowledge that they will see the best in us when they emerge victorious in the next election or the one after that. He says human equality requires that we treat others as we would have them treat us, and in this we have failed. There can be no better time than now for people on all sides to take a long, hard look at themselves and aspire to be better. The birth of our nation was itself an aspiration, and there is still time to live up to it. On the 244th anniversary of American independence, he says we can pledge this to each other, just as the signers of the Declaration of Independence pledged to each other their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. It's only fitting. I'll have this linked in the show notes. You can check them out at lovingliberty.net. We'll be back right after this.
Hey, welcome back to the show. Ah, there's so much material here that I, I want to share with you. Uh, again, if you get the chance, go to LovingLiberty.net. Pull up this episode. This will be hour two of the show today, July 3rd, 2020. And check out the show notes. I always provide links because I want you to check them out for yourself. Share them if you like. Um, got a great one here. This I love this. Barry Brownstein is, is such a great writer. And this is something he wrote four years ago. So this was during the election of 2016. And it's an article called, Have We Become a Nation of Servants? I'm just going to give you a couple of excerpts. I want you to read it for yourself. It still holds true, this being another election year. We're still struggling with some of the same problems. One of the questions that he starts with here is, do we elect officials and then merely return to our lives of servitude? I know we put so much emphasis on, well, you know, but we got to elect the right person. The Supreme Court's going to be affected by this. And, you know, who's going to be in charge? And if, if it's this one, we're all dead. And if it's this one, we're all saved. But somehow there, there seems to be an attitude of it all depends on whoever is residing at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, as opposed to what we are doing right where we live, right where we stand. Matters as well. Now, I don't know if you have seen the video of the basketball teams passing a basketball and you ask, hey, count how many times the ball is passed. And a, a person wearing a full body gorilla suit steps into the middle of the scene, right in the middle of the action. While you're counting the ball going back and forth, most people don't notice the gorilla. It stands there for a full nine seconds and then walks off. And Barry Brownstein explains in their book, The Invisible Gorilla, Christopher Chabris and, Di- and Daniel Simons Explain the phenomenon of inattentional blindness as an error of perception resulting from a lack of attention to an unexpected object. Shabras and Simon further explain that when people devote their attention to a particular area or aspect of their visual world, they tend not to notice unexpected objects, even when those unexpected objects are salient, potentially important, and appear right where they're looking. So you were so busy considering what you think is important, in this case, counting how many times the ball is going back and forth, we literally overlook other very significant events. Many of us may not see the gorilla, but it doesn't mean the gorilla isn't there. Now, his point was, no matter whether it was Trump or Clinton who was elected in 2016, the cause of liberty was likely to take more more blows. Following every pronouncement Trump and Clinton make to keep us fixated on the ball being passed, while we ignore the gorilla. And he says what Trump or Clinton believes might be important, but what we believe is even more important because what we believe is the gorilla. Do we believe that politicians can and should control the economy? Or do we believe that the attempts to control are counterproductive, misguided, and have unintended consequences? If a critical mass of us believes that politicians can and should control the economy, well, we should cheer policies such as a $15 an hour minimum wage. Do we believe in getting something for nothing? If so, then we have a sense of entitlement, and our politicians will keep spending or keep growing entitlement spending. Do we believe in a win-lose static world? If that's the case, politicians who promise increasing tariffs on imported goods will be appealing. Do we define ourselves by superficial characteristics like the color of our skin or perceived nationality? If so, politicians will pander to our primitive tribal allegiances. We are not victims of the beliefs of politicians. Barry Brownstein says we're victims of our own collective beliefs. 
He says if a Stalin had been born in the U.S. in the 1930s, would there have been demand for his services as a politician? Well, there may well have been people with Stalinist thinking in the U.S. who dreamed of achieving political office, but we never heard of them. Because the number of Americans who would have been open to collectivizing farming and starving farmers was negligible. In short, as was the case for the Russians, our collective beliefs are the seeds of the government we reap. And he talks in this article about the great man theory, exemplified in the words of 19th century Scottish essayist Thomas Carlyle, quote, the history of the world is but the biography of great men, end quote. And Barry Brownstein asks, if history is shaped by great men, what role does that leave for the rest of us? We must follow the plans that the great ones have designed. Then how much room is there for order to emerge that's the product of human action, but not human design? Jeffrey Tucker had an essay called The Founding Father of Fascism, in which he explained why believing the great man theory creates a mindset that threatens freedom. The less a nation is directed by conscious design, Tucker observes, the more it can provide a model of genuine greatness. Start looking toward the immeasurable creative power inherent in the market and stop looking for the great man. Believing that all will be well if the right person obtains office, Barry Brownstein says, is a vestige of the great man theory. Many people still believe in the great man theory. Why else would so much time and effort, not to mention passion, be spent on who becomes our political leaders? But listen to this warning from Alexis de Tocqueville in 1835's Democracy in America. De Tocqueville observed the deep level of knowledge Americans had about their system of government saying, I have scarcely ever encountered a single man of the common people in America who did not perceive with surprising ease the obligations entailed in the laws of Congress and those which owe their beginnings to the laws of his own state, nor who could not separate the matters belonging to the general prerogatives of the Union from those regulated by his local legislature, and who could not point to where the competence of the federal courts begins and the limitation of the state tribunals ends. Now, Barry Brownstein asks, why would Americans be so informed about their government? As Joshua Charles writes in his book, Liberty's Secrets, America's founding is unique among nations in that we are a nation founded on principles, not on nationality. Joshua Charles says, never before had a people through reason, debate, and deliberation decided for themselves and their children upon a form of government most conducive to their happiness and prosperity. For the vast majority of human history, such matters had always been decided by force, accident, or birth. If some were fit to rule, others fit to obey. End quote. Now, Tocqueville saw that if despotism came to America, it wasn't going to be the old world European kind. It would be something more benign, an all-powerful government, but one elected by the citizens. Deadly, nevertheless, to freedom. Listen to the warning that Tocqueville offered. If American-style despotism were to deepen, Tocqueville said it would spread its arms over the whole of society, covering the surface of social life with a network of petty, complicated, detailed, and uniform rules through which even the most original minds and the most energetic of spirits cannot reach the light in order to rise above the crowd. It does not break men's wills, but it does soften, bend, and control them. Rarely does it force men to act but it constantly oppresses what actions they perform. It does not tyrannize, but it inhibits, represses, drains, snuffs out, doles so much effort 
that it finally reduces each nation to nothing more than a flock of timid and hard-working animals with the government as a shepherd. Almost sounds like he saw what we would be facing in our day. And in a powerful and prophetic passage, Barry Brownstein writes, Tocqueville wrote as if he were admonishing us today. It is indeed difficult to imagine how men who have completely given up the habit of self-government could successfully choose those who should do it for them. And then the punchline, a liberal, energetic, and prudent government can never emerge from the voting of a nation of servants. Barry Brownstein asks, are we willing to challenge our misguided beliefs? Only when we decide to examine our beliefs and stop being a nation of servants will our political leadership change. And as we move toward and into our Independence Day weekend, I have a personal challenge that I want to advance to you. And this is something I'm not willing to, I'm not asking you anything I'm not willing to do for myself, but I think that what we need to do more so than anything as we contemplate the incredible gift of liberty that became our birthright upon the founding of this nation, we need to seriously ask, what can I do to help bring about a course correction? Now, that doesn't mean run for office. I'm not saying you need to run the nation or even that you need to lecture and write stern letters to every elected official out there. It starts at the grassroots level. It starts with the kind of people who understand the principles and practices of freedom and are willing to live them even when the temptation is to cast them aside for some momentary gain, maybe a political gain, maybe the perceived safety of of, uh, protection from a, a particular virus. The temptations are myriad. What we need right now is courage, wisdom, and foresight. Oh, and a bit of humility. So I'm going to ask you, join me as I will be spending some time on my knees this weekend, speaking to the creator of the universe, pleading with that creator to be our protector, to be the source of our understanding, to soften the hearts of our leaders, and to help us preserve the greatest gift that he has ever given us. That being our liberty. 